Welcome to Chattachesis. I'm your host, Deacon Matt Hallback, PhD, and I'm also a deacon of the Diocese of Des Moines, Iowa. I'm your host of Chattachesis, a podcast series for clergy that helps them find creative and fresh ways to share the gospel message and promote missionary discipleship. This episode is brought to you by Sadlier's catechetical series, Christ in Us and Cristo in Nosotros, which guides children's faith formation in three movements, encounter, accompany, and witness. All are a part of each lesson. Learn more at sadlyreligion.com forward slash CIU. Today on Chattachesis, we have a special episode on accompaniment for you. It's special because we will be chatting with a panel of experts, not for our usual 30 minutes, but for an entire hour. We originally recorded this episode in two parts, but we re-edited it to be a single episode so that you could get all the great content in a single click of the mouse or touchpad. You can pause at any time or listen all at once to what our experts have to say. Our guests today are Patrick Manning, Tracy Lamont, and Daniela Jupon-Jerome. Daniela is Director of Ministry Formation and Field Education at St. John's School of Theology and Seminary in Collegeville. Tracy is Assistant Professor of Religious Education and Young Adult Ministry at Loyola University in New Orleans. And Patrick is an Associate Professor and Chair of Pastoral Theology at Seton Hall University. Without further ado, welcome Daniela, Patrick, and Tracy to Chattachesis. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you. Um, I've really been looking forward to this episode. Uh, as you know, our, our listeners, that we've been talking mostly with clergy for the past year, but we have started doing shows now with experts in catechesis. Maybe they're expert practitioners or expert scholars, but experts nonetheless. And just to tell us a little bit about yourselves, each of you, um, maybe we'll just start with Daniela. If you can say a little bit about the work you're currently doing uh, in catechesis or related ministry and how that is impacting clergy. Okay, so I'm currently the Director of Ministerial Formation at St. John's University School of Theology and Seminary, as you said. So my work involves overseeing the formational aspects for our lay students, um, but also our seminarians. So I work closely with the rector, and um, I help uh, seminarians with field placements. I help them think about uh, all four aspects of the dimensions of formation that are put forth in the documents. Um, and it's a great, great pleasure. Um, in my professional background, I did have diocesan seminary um, teaching experience in my previous position, but now at St. John's, it's a Benedictine context. So it's really interesting and enlivening and different to work in particular with religious seminarians, Benedictine Cistercians, um, some others as well. So um, my expertise is in pastoral theology, and I work in um, the area of digital culture and uh, formation and catechetical aspects of that. So I think a lot about how to tailor formational programs to um, the needs of digital culture in terms of our spiritual formation, our human formation, communication skills, pastoral skills, as well as intellectual understanding. So just really briefly, that's how my research comes into the work I do. Well, you're more than qualified to be on this program, and we're definitely uh, lucky to have you. So Patrick, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks so much, Deacon Matt. Um, so uh, my background is really primarily in uh, in education and religious ed and catechesis. Um, although teach, I, I am I in sort of two worlds here at Seton Hall. I, I'm part of the university community, but my primary situation is in our seminary here. We're, we're the uh, seminary for the Archdiocese of, of Newark. Uh, and so I'm spending most of my time uh, working in, and teaching with uh, seminarians and, and also some some lay people. 
So, I mean, my, my work is really um, animated by Jesus's uh, promise in, in John 10, 10 of, of life in abundance of life, life to the full. Um, and so really everything I do orients to that, trying to, to teach, to help people live into that, that fullness of life as disciples. And, uh, you know, so I find myself uh, being stretched in different ways, teaching in a seminary and, and being the, the only full-time pastoral theologian here, helping our, our seminarians and lay people to think about uh, how to draw people into that fullness of life by evangelizing, catechizing, uh, ministering, support, administering the sacraments, all, all those sort of fun things. Just a quick question, a curiosity. Are you finding, um, maybe it's in Seton Hall or elsewhere in academia, more of a space now, more of a welcoming now for pastoral theology that people really understand its value and purpose, particularly in light of, of such an emphasis on evangelization today in the church? Um, you know, I, I think so. It, it probably depends on, on whom you, you talk to. I'll say mm -hmm. the, certainly what we're hearing locally from our local sem our, our seminarians here and priests in the area is that there's, there's a great need for pastoral formation, and I, therefore I think an appreciation uh, of that. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, as the, the pastoral theologian here, I'm frustrated there aren't more pastoral theology <laughs> courses in the curriculum, but I'm sure every professor feels that way about their Good. area. So. Well, the one, the, one, the one plus, Patrick, is, you know, the pastoral theologians, they're all in agreement with themselves. So that's <laughs> yeah, good. Naturally. Don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Getting consensus is easy. All right, Tracy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Deacon Matt. Um, so I am Tracy Lamont, and I teach um, primarily in our, we have a master's degree in religious education, um, as well as a master's degree in pastoral studies. So I teach primarily on the religious education side. Mm -hmm. um, and so our students in LIM are um, from all across the country. We have an online and on-campus program. We also have an extension program that works with dioceses and um, particular parishes that forms um, ministry leaders in context. So we have a range of deacons. We have pastors in our program. Um, so we are not a seminary, but we have a, a, a wide variety of uh, the people of God that are in our program. So primarily lay uh, ecclesial ministers or people that just really want to learn more about their faith. Um, and then we also, I have several, several uh, pastors that are in my, my program as well. And then we also have a Hilton grant with um, sisters from five different countries and I think six different religious congregations in uh, Africa, which has been really, really powerful mm -hmm. to teach with them. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of that is catechesis with, um, and, and also just social justice work with the youth in, in their communities. Um, so yeah, so I, I teach, uh, we have a catechetical, catechetical leadership program. I'm currently teaching curriculum development and, and we talk a lot about religious education as a very broad and encompassing field that religious education is about, um, teaching that which is most meaningful, that which is religious and that which is educative. So kind of standing at those crossroads in between the two. And so underneath that will fall catechesis, you know, catechesis is one way of, um, engaging in religious education. So, so Oh, yeah, so that's a little bit about my context. And I write some of my scholarship is on um, kind of really unpacking missionary discipleship and accompaniment and synodality. I've done a lot of work um, actually engaging in the process of synodality, which is exciting because now we have the synod on synodality, um, and I feel really jazzed up by that. So, so yeah, so that's me. 
That's exciting. And you sound, I mean, you're definitely one of the right people to have on this show on this topic because we'll be talking about all those things you just mentioned. Um, so welcome to you all and let's get rolling. So for this, this is going to be our first two-part series. Uh, we've not done this before on Chattachesis, but this is a huge topic and primarily we'll be talking about accompaniment, but we want to talk about it in a way that gives it some historical and theological context. So we'll be talking about kind of the development in the church that kind of brought forth accompaniment accompaniment as not just an idea, but now reality, now part of pastoral practice, but we're still trying to figure out kind of what it is and how it works and what, you know, what's the significance of it and, and what, what do we all do with it? And, and in, in addressing those things also, we'll be mentioning uh, a little bit about synod and synodality because certainly accompaniment is a big part of the synodal process. And again, really bringing this to a head with a focus on missionary discipleship. So, this is really going to be a free-willing discussion, which is great. It's also maybe a little bit of nail-biting because we do not have scripts, and uh, we're just going off the cuff, so to speak. So why don't we start with this? So we, we are living in an era right now where the church is asking all of its baptized faithful to consider themselves to be missionary disciples. Missionary disciples. Do you think, first of all, why is the church giving us this language and really shaping this kind of vision of discipleship? And do you think people are responding to it? Let's just throw that out there. We're not going to go in any kind of order. Feel free to jump in. Why are we doing this? Why are we speaking this way? And is it res resonating with the people in the pews? One of the things that um, I've... I've been encountering in um, kind of, you know, regional, like our region five down here, like regional gatherings, um, national gatherings, like NCEA and other things is that the language of missionary discipleship is there. Um, it comes from evangelicodium. Um, and it's, you know, it comes from the synodal process of listening to the church and, and trying to understand what direction the spirit is moving us into where we need to be listening more. Um, and so there was, there was beautiful fruit from that synod. Um, that kind of Pope Francis took over. Go ahead. What were you saying? As I say, do you think, Tracy, that people are wondering, why is the church doing so much listening? Is anyone asking that question? Is there anybody out there who's thinking, I thought the church had all the answers. Why is it doing all this listening to everybody? Or do you feel like most people are like, it's about time the church is listening to everybody? What do you think? I mean, it's split in my, in my view. I think predominantly people here so so the language of missionary discipleship has become kind of the, the latest buzzword um we so what i see in all these regional gatherings is everyone has relabeled their program um from yeah. sacramental prep to just be called missionary discipleship yes. and it's just i mean it doesn't echo anything that's actually in evangelium because pope francis is urging ministry leaders to embrace this new evangelization which enables them to become a more synodal church which is listening church journeying together where the people of god journey together as missionary disciples to create a more just and compassionate world. And what we see is just renaming your catechetical program, missionary discipleship is not actually putting young people out in the world, right. which is what missionary activity is, you know? And so, so that's been my biggest frustration is, is kind of using the language of accompaniment right. and missionary discipleship in a way that it, it's not its fullest definitions and understandings. So I want, to, I want to bring Daniela and uh, Patrick into this. So if you've got a square, just because you put a label on it that says circle, doesn't make it a circle. Uh, I agree with you that I see it more of a superficial treatment of missionary discipleship on the ground level. 
Um, let's get back to the issue. What's Evangelic Gaudium is driving this at the corner at the center of this is we got to get back to the gospel. How do you see the gospel factoring into creating this vision of missionary discipleship? I'll jump in here and um, if I may, can can I circle back to your earlier question of like? Sure. Um, there's so many good questions that are coming up, so it's hard to pick. But I want to go with that one. I think um, there, there's a there's a signs of the times thing going on here a little bit, which is a really good thing, you know, um, discerning what's going on in the greater world and how can we be conversation partners with that as church. And I think we're definitely living in a time where we're accustomed to having a voice and having a sense of participation. And a lot of it, you know, from my own um, kind of niche of studies with communication and media, like we all have a platform, we all can tweet and, and post and whatever. So we're like, we're accustomed to being able to participate in things and have a say and shift things along. And um, I think in some ways, or maybe that's my hope anyway, the church has um, developed a sensitivity to this. And the way to really um, motivate people these days is not really hand content at them, but rather to empower people to use their voices, which they're accustomed to in other parts of life. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is a really constructive thing. It's thinking about how to part how to be more participative in the church and like claim that, that your vocational call as a baptized person, claim mm -hmm. your charisms for the good of the community, mm -hmm. claim the good news that is in your life to share with others. To me, I see it that way. Um, maybe that's a, a bit more constructive, but um, I think that there's a set, I hope that there's a sensitivity there to like what I, what we call in communications, a participatory culture mm -hmm. and maybe a way that sh the church is showing that a little bit. I wonder what, what Patrick thinks though, too. Well, I'll jump in real quick. I completely agree with you, by the way, about the signs of the time. I think as a society, particularly in the United States, we, we've we come to and, and tragically come to the realization that we are not listening to each other very well on in, in any arena of life, sociopolitical, religious, you name it. And we're so polarized. And to actually listen to one another, to take stock in what other people are saying, to empathize with people, uh, you know, really the, talking about the art of listening, which is a critical skill that we seem to be lacking these days, um, it's so important. I do think the church really does desire to capitalize on the census fidelity, the sense, the sense of the faithful. Um, I think the challenge is going to be, Danielle, that we, especially in this country, have a real strong democratic sense of things. So when we hear listening and speaking and sharing and shaping things, we get... We get a democratic mind frame about it but we're not in a democratic organization when it comes to the catholic church so that'll be interesting to see how that all plays out as we move forward in this era of missionary discipleship and particularly with the upcoming synod all right patrick jump in here uh thanks yeah i mean to, to tie together a couple of the questions or a couple of threads um you know you were just asking about the gospel and what the gospel has to do with all this and you know i, I to relate that back to an earlier question about how are respond how are people on the ground responding uh i see a very mixed response mm -hmm. uh you know i think about uh one former student of mine a, a, a lay guy uh who now consults with numerous different parishes and um you know he talks all the time about running into this brick wall of, of, you know, evangelizing, trying to encourage people to take that step in toward, uh, you know, more of a missionary mode, becoming a missionary mm -hmm. disciple and mm -hmm. encountering a lot of people who think, um, well, why, you know, I'm Catholic. I, I go to mass. I do what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. and there's not necessarily a recognition of why something more is, is needed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, I have conversations with, with people 
uh, who are, they're, they're so affirmed and energized by uh, the new evangelization and a church kind of ramping up and entering into more of a missionary mode, because I know there, there are many people uh, in the church who, you know, they, they love Jesus and they're disciples themselves. And sometimes they have felt alone in that because in the Catholic church, we don't always talk, or at least historically haven't uh, talked a lot about our relationship with Jesus and about discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so to relate that, what does the gospel have to do with this? I, I would say, I mean, those are, those are some of the signs of the time that, that I'm reading. Uh, but I think we shouldn't be surprised about that because it's always been so. Um, there, you know, there are those who, who walked away from Jesus and there were those who, who followed after him. There were those who pursued him and there were those who were willing to give their lives for him. And so we, I think it's very reasonable to expect that there's going to be the kind of diversity of responses in, in our own time. Yeah. I mean, if you take the gospel as, you know, the core, the very, very center of the church's being, uh, you know, along with the soul of Jesus Christ. But I mean, the, 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 the gospel itself, giving that written sort of directive and guidance and setting the goalposts for what it means to have a meaningful life, to be Christian, to be a disciple, to, to, to experience and share in and share out of God's saving plan, etc. It's great to hold that up. Uh, time, you know, I don't think we can ever stop doing that and saying, how are we doing against the gospel, so to speak? How are we stacking up? How are we living and conducting our lives? How are we governing as a church? How are we uh, listening to people, which was mentioned earlier? So I think Francis has definitely steered the ship in the right direction and, and is showing us once again, not only the blueprint in the gospel, but the goals of life and living and of church that are found there in the gospel. And we're really uh, entering a period of, of deep reflection and wide reflection, particularly now with the Synod and preparation for the 2023 Synod. I want to jump now to our primary word for this episode, a word that we'll look at in more granular detail in the next episode, but let's talk accompaniment. Accompaniment is a key term. It's also another buzzword out there. It's in the air in, in, in the Catholic ethos, so to speak. Um, what is it, and why is it important? How does it relate to missionary discipleship? I think if I could jump in, I think um, if we're going to be forming missionary disciples, then we have to accompany people first. And then that's sort of like, like the method of, of how to actually be on journey um, as a people of God. Like the imagery comes so strong from um, the Vatican II documents of, of being on a pilgrimage on a journey, you know, and, and naming the church as the people of God together. Um, and to do that, we have to accompany one another. We have to listen to one another. And what it really means, and, and there's confusion over the term. Some people think, think it means you need to be some kind of a counselor or something. And it's mm. absolutely not the case because you shouldn't be unless you're trained. Right. <laughs> you prefer people to yes, yes. You never jump in there. Um, <laughs> but what it, what it truly means is, you know, I mean, and again, going back to the gospel at, at all times, you know, the, the road to Emmaus, we like to gloss over that story and, and leave a couple key elements out of that story. You know, the first thing Jesus did after dying and coming back from the dead was listen. <laughs> he accompanied the disciples on the road and he listened to them. And then he started talking about like, oh, well, have you considered the way you were thinking about all that happened in Jerusalem in light of, you know, your faith? So that's a company that's like, oh, I listened to you. And then I kind of draw to try to draw out the faith and my own experience and my own journey of faith and kind of bring that together in a, in a, in a really healthy dialogue rooted in listening, not rooted in waiting to speak and waiting to get your point across, not rooted in judgment, 
Pope Francis is very clear about that, mm. but rooted in compassion, rooted in love, rooted in care for the other. And then when that happens, you know, the part that we always kind of, you know, move away from is like, oh, then he broke open the scriptures and then they, you know, saw Jesus at the breaking of the bread. There's a verse in there where he's ready to keep going in the wrong direction away from Jerusalem until the disciples say, oh, will you stop and stay with us? The disciples had the freedom to stop and invite Jesus in. He gave them that freedom. And that's the scary part, I think, about accompaniment for some mm -hmm. people is, you know, accompany and, and Pope Francis is really clear. He's like, accompaniment isn't like affirming someone's bad decisions. Right. You know, it's but it's making sure they know they are not alone. One of the young people we talked to in our synodal process, she said in our listening sessions, she said, first of all, I can't believe anybody cares what I think about the faith or my church because no one's ever asked me that before. Mm -hmm. They've just been teaching things to me mm. as if I'm just supposed to blindly accept it. And mm. she said, so I'm grateful for this time to be listened to, she said. And she's affiliated. She counts herself as Catholic still. <laughs> and many of our Catholic young people still have one foot out the door, but they're still naming their faith, which is a very important reality. She said, the lowest point in my life was when nobody was checking in on me anymore. She goes, mm -hmm. that's when I almost lost my faith. No, but none of my mentors checked in on me. It was the lowest point of my life. That's why accompaniment is so important. Patrick, Daniela, accompaniment, what is it? What are we doing? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love on, it. Go ahead, Daniela. Thank you. Um, I'll pick up on something um, pertaining to listening. And this is something, Matt, you brought up earlier and then um, so nicely reinforced it. Um, Tracy in terms of just joining those two terms. And I think that's something really rich there to include in the conversation about accompaniment, the listening posture and how that really is for me, fundamentally, uh, not just a communication skill, but like a spiritual disposition and the ability to make room within ourselves. Mm. Um, and rather than just to navel gaze, it's another word for maybe even hospitality and to, to make space, to create, to extend an invitation so that I can receive something like that's what listening is. And, you know, I'm in a Benedictine context, so I get to like soak this in, listen, my son to the master's instruction. That's how the, the rule of Benedict begins. Um, and so I think there's something really important there about like the listening church and the idea of Jesus walking with those on the road to Emmaus and like receiving their, their story first, even though it's piecemeal and, you know, he needs to kind of form them. Um, so how can we replicate that posture? And Tracy, you said it so nicely, like listening versus wait, waiting for your turn to speak, right? Because um, it's an extremely difficult thing to do. It's extremely, to, to really extend hospitality to, to someone and to really make space within ourselves for the other is really, really hard to do. Like we're always battling with our own pride or like our own agenda, even if we think it's really like good intention. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you really just create that space, that silence, that, that absence, you know, going back to the Emmaus story that when Jesus disappears, it isn't like a magic act. He creates absence. He creates space. He creates that space for that, those disciples then to step forward and grow into. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to kind of riff with that a little bit, because I think it's really, truly important, especially from formational perspective as well. How do we become listening, uh, not just as a church, but as individuals, ministers, um, and, 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 you know, questions along those lines. Well, as a jazz pianist for a number of years, all riffs are welcome here. So can you continue to riff on? Patrick, any thoughts on accompaniment? Lots of thoughts. Um, yeah, to, so again, to jump off on, on uh, things that Tracy and Daniela have just said. I mean, for me, something that 
um, Tracy touched on that's so crucial um, is, is when she was speaking about the freedom that, that has to be involved in accompaniment. Um, and uh, Danielle was using this, this imagery of, of creating a space. But I think I think that's so key. You know, this question of you know why why accompaniment? Why is why is Francis uh, advocating for this so much? But to, you know, connect it back to the discussion of, of missionary discipleship. I really think that accompaniment is it, it is it is a key means of promoting that kind of missionary discipleship. Because if we are generally trying to uh, invite people into a life of discipleship to you know to use the some of the language of the new directory for catechesis to invite a, a lived response of faith mm-hmm. not something that's passively absorbed some not something that's just in the background or done out of habit but something that is chosen that someone that gives meaning to a person's life how does that happen as, as tracy said you can't just teach at a person uh, at some point there needs to be the risk involved of allowing that person to choose. And, you know, we're all, we're all teachers here. We all know that that is a scary thing when you, when you stop talking and you uh, open the space for that silence. And there's an opportunity for something to enter into the classroom or enter into the space that you are not controlling. That is a scary moment. But if we're talking about making missionary disciples, um, not, not just robots, not just rank and file, um, that space needs to be created, that we need to be, uh, we need to respect and honor the freedom of the people that, that we are working with. So I think that's so crucial. And, that and I think space, that, 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 that space ahead. is filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's that yeah. space. I wanted yeah. to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's also, it's also something to dread when you're a podcast host and you throw it out to your guests for it to answer it or respond. And you're just like, is anyone going to say anything? Yes, it's it's just absolutely <laughs> frightening. And you guys have said a mouthful, three mouthful, and it's been wonderful um, so far. And again, this is just part one of a two-part series where we're really tackling what is accompaniment, how does it, how is it situated in the life of the church today within missionary discipleship? And in our next episode, we'll take a look at a, a more granular look at accompaniment through stories and uh, through just sort of sharing more about practical things regarding accompaniment. Um, you know, you mentioned um, how do we give a lived response, or the church uh, mention, mentions in the new directory, uh, the goal of a lived response of faith actualizing that faith right you mentioned not being passive makes me think of actualizing our faith and that takes some that takes attitudes and actions right those are part of actualizing what are those attitudes and actions of of accompaniment and i'm sure they would be complementary and probably somewhat similar to those same actions and attitudes that we find in missionary disciples uh people who take their faith seriously and try to live it so let's explore those kinds of things here in the next episode together again this is the end of the first episode of a two-part series on accompaniment please stay with us for our second episode god bless Welcome to our second episode of a two-part series on accompaniment. I am your host, Deacon Matt Hallback. This is the Chattachesis Podcast. So I talk to DREs all the time. I talk to diocesan directors all the time in my role at Sadler. And we talk a lot about accompaniment. It's in the air. Um, In our last episode, we talked a lot about the listening aspect of accompaniment, the idea of ecclesial listening, uh, Jesus as a 
the greatest example of, of his post-resurrection, how should the church conduct himself? The first thing he does is he listens to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to their concerns and their fears. And it brought me back, and it probably did you too, uh, back to Gaudium et Spes. And the very first line of that document, that the church is there to listen and to share and to journey with the world and to embrace and empathize with its hopes, its fears, its anguish, its, its joys, all those things. But when I talk to the folks that are kind of, quote-unquote, in charge of evangelization catechesis at the diocese in parish or in our Catholic schools, if you, if you talk about accompaniment, they're kind of like, well, I get it, but I'm not sure how to describe it to you. Is it a process? Is it, what is it? Can you fill us in? I'm turning into your experts. Let's jump in. How do you break down or how do you envision accompaniment? What's involved? I'll start. Um, to me, it's not so much a process as a posture or maybe an attitude that we can um, project and say, I welcome you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk with you on this journey. So like, how does, what does that look like practically? Maybe you want to cover that in a different question, but um, you know, how do we answer the phone? How do we welcome people? How do we respond to an email? How do we uh, show up and, and like are present with another? Like all of those can have a sense of accompaniment about them. It's, I think, is an attitude that we portray to others, um, you know, walking, adjusting our steps so that we can walk with them wherever they are. And I guess I would just stop there because I'm sure you want to unpack that with others. But to me, it's not a process. First of all, it's how we present ourselves, how we embody that. Yeah, I'm hearing disposition too. You know, it's kind of how our disposition, how we, how we, our posture of discipleship, which is a 24/7 deal. And I think accompaniment really amplifies that or highlights that fact. You know, and thereby raises the stakes of what it means to be a disciple. Yeah, I was. I would love to add to what you were saying, Daniela. It's it's a hundred percent a posture, and it is not one that we're used to in pastoral ministry. We're very used to programming. We're very used to, here's the textbook we just got from Sadler, <laughs> you know, and say, hey. you know, let's go to town, you know, and that's, there's a place, there's a time and place for all of that. But, but accompaniment's not something we've been doing very well. Some places do it great, but in the United States, we've been struggling with that. There's what, what tends to happen is there's these national statistics that say, oh, we're losing all the young people. Oh, nobody believes in the true presence. And then what we respond with is this knee jerk, let's, what program's going to fix this? Not, not only a program, but you know what, the reason that those two things are happening that you mentioned, uh, they just don't have the right information. We're not well, giving out the, the right thing. information, like, right? Like yeah. who, I, I don't remember being asked if I believed in the true presence. So, so when my diocese responds to that, I'm like, who are they responding to? Like, I think right. I asked me what I thought about it, you know, so that's, so it's a, it's a snapshot of what could be going on in the world, but is it actually telling you about the people in next door to you, you know, and that's where accompaniment really truly comes in. It's not about data collection. You know, the synodal process is not about like, okay, what did everybody say? Send off your information to the diocese or send it off to the Vatican. It's a way of forming relationships so that people are seen and known and loved. And when you can form relationships, then you can do the work of God. Then, because the work of God is hard. <laughs> it's hard work and it's easy to burn out. But if you have a small Christian community that you have formed meaningful, robust relationships with, you can take on the world. That's right. So I'm, I'm an island, so I use farm analogies. But the, yeah. <laughs> the cultivating of relationships is like the tilled soil into which you plant the seeds of the gospel and they grow a lot better. Um, thank you for that. About hemorrhaging Catholics, too. 
Um, what are they walking away from? And we all know it's not just a belief system. They're walking away from the body of Christ, which is a personal, relational reality. They're walking away from relationships that either they've found wanting in or un not meaningful enough or however you want to phrase that. And I think we really have to, to admit that fact if we're going to really address this issue. Patrick, how about you, buddy? Yeah, you know, cool. well, I'm listening. You just took my mind into a different direction. But, um, you know, what I was, what I was going to say, maybe I can bring it back to that. What I was going to say um, is... If you so, I I know Tracy also has been very interested in in the research coming out of uh, the new Springtide Institute, and they so they just very recently published uh, their their 2021 state of religion. And one thing that was really interesting to me in there, but perhaps not surprising, is is they asked young people uh, w when or why do they turn to their religious communities in in times of uh, uncertainty or, or stress. And the, the most, first of all, the 20% of, of respondents said they don't turn to their, their religious community. They're, they're not finding it helpful. Uh, but the most common response of people who did said that if they turn to their, their faith community in a time of anxiety or confusion, they do it because they have friends there. Mm. So, you know, to the point of what we're saying, uh, relationship is absolutely key. And that's, you know, and I, I almost feel like the word is not strong enough because it, it's been somewhat worn thin, but that, but that is Christianity. Um, you know, God said um, that, you know, I call you friends, love one another as I have loved you. And that for me is, that's the heart of Christianity and that's the heart of accompaniment. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is what, that is what we yearn for most deeply as human beings that is what keeps us connected to, to any uh, group, any community, in, including the church. And so if people are walking away, uh, there are many, many different reasons. Uh, but very often, I think, a common experience is the ties of relationship are not strong enough there. But if people uh, are staying or if they are coming back, it's because they have formed a, a, a personal caring relationship with at least one person in the body of Christ, mm -hmm. that the body of Christ has become incarnate for them in their own experience, in their own lives. Why do you think, I'm asking all, all three of you, why, why it, and this, this is my observation about accompaniment, there's been a lot of resistance to it. In the last episode, we talked about kind of a misnomer, a common myth of accompaniment is that it's this kind of moral relativistic approach to, to discipleship, that I'm okay, you're okay, it doesn't matter where we're going, we're not heading anywhere, we just want everyone to feel great, which isn't the case. It's really a, a, about conversion and growing deeper in our relationship with Christ, but also as the body of Christ, which means deeper in our relationship with one another. What is the resistance, do you think, to accompaniment and to these intangibles? Maybe that's the, the, the resistance right there, is that relationship is made up of a lot of these intangible phenomenological things we can't look and point and say, you know, this is what it takes to have love, and this is what it takes to have faith. But we know faith when we see it, and we know love when we see it, and we experience that in a relationship. What, but what do you think the resistance is? And even in catechetical circles, to accompaniment. Go ahead, Danielle. You know, you're asking a really good question, and I think... Um, Simply, I think accompaniment is really hard. It's really hard to truly like relate with another person. And then I'm, there are so many directions I could take this comment. Like, for example, direction one: How are we doing with human formation in our like um, diaconal and and priestly and lay formation programs? Like, are we teaching people how to relate well, have healthy boundaries, extend relationships authentically? 
side note, we can move on from that, but I just wanted to put that as part of the conversation. I think something else that makes accompaniment hard is like when we're opening up to being in the same wavelength with another, we're walking a step with the other, that can be in really messy places. And sometimes it's easier to be properly boundaried, so to speak, behind our processes or our programs and say, I'm sorry, I don't take meetings at this time, or I'm sorry, whatever, that, that, that. Like, Accompaniment rather would mean me taking that angry phone call from somebody who's upset about the COVID mask policy or like, that's a really hard, messy thing to do. I may not have that figured out either. Right. And then here's somebody calling the, the, the parish and is, is real sore about it. Like accompaniment forces me in a way to like take that phone call and try to be a Christian response to that. Mm-hmm. And it might it would be much easier to take, let that go to voicemail. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's what accompaniment really <laughs> meets like real life resistance. And that's not, and guess what? That's not political. That's a human thing. Like, I don't want to be yelled at, you know, I don't want to be the one who's receiving the angry, like hurtful, whatever experience of another. But I think accompaniment calls us precisely to those messy places where like, let's have difficult conversations with those who are sore for whatever reason and see if we can ease that soreness and, and be balm for that. And that's really, really hard to do. So I guess I would just add that. No, it's great. That's I think that gives us a wonderful conversation here. It, it's fluid. Accompaniment's fluid. It's organic. It's daily. It's it's part of just the fabric of life and interpersonal relationships in general. And because of that kind of looseness or fluidity of it, it's 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 hard to have those boundaries that we want, like beginnings, middles, and ends. But if we're honest with ourselves. Isn't this really in keeping with the baptismal community, uh, catechumen in its spirit, which is far more organic than we tend to use it? We put beginnings and ends on it. We run it on a school calendar, da 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 Any, any thoughts about, uh, again, the resistance to accompaniment or this idea of boundaries as, as problematic for us? I think, um, if I could chime in, I think, Daniela, I think you are absolutely spot on with the messiness of it. And what I was going to say, and I think you were saying it beautifully is that listening is hard. It's very hard, you know, and, and because what you're going to hear might implicate you what we heard. I mean, it's hard to sit with it. And that's where a robust human formation, like you were just talking about our own human and spiritual formation has got to be in line. You have to have practices of legitimate self-care, not like pedicures, like legitimately, (laughs) processing experiences with God. Like, that's why I love the Ignatian examine. Like you can just ask three questions. Like, how was I, you know, radiating God's light today? How was I a barrier to it? What am I going to do tomorrow? You know, differently, like those three questions, you should be sitting with conversations that that you've had with someone. What we heard when we listened was when young adults, we were, we were a part of, um, a cohort of folks at, at a Catholic high school that wanted to re-engage the young adult alumni. And so these young adults that we talked to were once at the school. Mm-hmm. And when they talked about their, their, their negative experiences at the school, the, t- the teachers and the coaches were implicated by that. And one of them started to cry and, and, and it was about bullying. They said, we, we reported bullying and we were told it's not bullying. You're not getting thrown up against a locker or pants. That's not bullying. And they were totally dismissed about their cyberbullying experiences. And the person that heard that from that young person said, I, I'm the one that said that. I'm the one that said that. Mm-hmm. And so listening is hard because we're going be, to be implicated mm-hmm. by what we hear. So how do we process that with God? And that's, 
the stuff of transformation that you were both saying like this, like, like conversion is not a one and done in the Catholic circles. It's not in the gospel that way. I mean, Paul wasn't struck by whatever, because we got four different accounts of what happened to Paul. You know, like it took him like six or seven some odd years to write his first letter, you know, like there. So like this, and you know, we have Jesus telling Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like he was a disciple. Like, <laughs> Like, like it's messy, you know? So we have all of this human formation, like at our fingertips in the gospel, we have it in our experiences and it is very hard. And it's very easy to just kind of put on a program and say, I've done my best. It's very hard to say I've listened and now I'm implicated because in that impl impl being implicated means now you have to discern what's got, like, it's kind of, it's hard, it's scary and it hurts. But we have a strong healing tradition in this church, you know, preaching, teaching, and healing. Those are three things Jesus did. We got our teaching down. Preaching, we could work on it. Mm -hmm. But healing, where, where and when are we doing that? Mm -hmm. And so maybe this is what God's calling us to right now is to heal these wounds. People have church hurt. And you're going to hear that when you listen. And it's going to be hard. But that's where God comes in. That's where the spirit comes in and says, I'm walking with you. God is, that's what Pope Francis writes about. God's our accompanier. God's always walking with us. We have that whole footprints and sand thing, you know, like we have all this tradition. We can do this, you know. Patrick, any thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, it's maybe, so this is supposed to be the, you know, the more concrete installment of, of the series. And so, you know, to, to bring it down a little bit, you know, I, I think about the places where, where I have, um, seeing accompaniment happening. And, uh, you know, something that I, I, I often find helpful to bring into these kind of conversations is, you know, a lot of times I think our, our image of accompaniment is, you know, sort of, you know, two people walking side by side. Um, but I think Francis has also pointed to the need of creating, you know, not, he talks a lot about a, a culture of encounter, but also, you know, communities of accompaniment. It's not just an individual task. It's not the just the individual catechist or the mentor, but really, it's it's an, it's creating an entire uh, community where people feel accompanied. Um, and so, you know, to where where can people experience that kind of healing that that Tracy has been talking about? Um, Pope Francis also often frequently points to um, to lay ecclesial movements and associations as a place where he sees the Holy Spirit at work stirring new things in, in the world today. Um, and I, you know, ha I, having personal experience, I, I see what he's talking about. I, you know, one of the benefits of being here at, at our seminary at this university is we're really, uh, we have a lot of people who, who represent many different kinds of church. Um, so I've been, I've been exposed to different lay ecclesial movements. But one, you know, the one that I'm sort of closest to and that has impressed me the most is, is communion and liberation. Mm. And um, for me, that's something I really look to as a model of what a community of a company can, can look at. Because as we've talked about, so many people feel they, they don't feel, they don't have a sense of belonging. They also don't have that sense of freedom that we were talking about in, in the last installment. But what has so impressed me about some of the gatherings of, of um, community and liberation is that the freedom and the respect that is exercised there. That people are that that very difficult questions, uh, people really struggling with with hard things uh, in terms of you know their their questioning of certain aspects of church teachings, struggling with with sexuality, struggling with scandal in the church. Um, 
people, as Tracy said, those are really hard things to sit there and listen to. Um, and yet they've managed to create a space um, where that is not only tolerated, but welcomed and even expected to a certain extent. That people are encouraged to ask really difficult questions and to be constantly asking, this is what Christianity proposes to us. Is this true in your experience? And, and if not, why not? But, you know, to the point about uh, accompaniment not being purely relativistic, it's never in a sense of, well, you know, say whatever you want, anything goes. There's always a sense that, no, we believe that there is something here in, in, this, in this ancient tradition, that there is wisdom, that there is a way of life that has persisted for a reason. Uh, and so we have these questions, we have these struggles, but do we also have uh, the determination to wrestle with that for a while and to be patient that's it, that something might take a while to, to emerge? Um, so that, for me, that's, that's kind of a sign of hope in, in the church today where I see accompaniment being done well. I know Pope Francis talks a lot, and, and this you can find in just different addresses or audiences or homilies, but he has these kind of go-to words for different actions that he associates with accompaniment, like going out and inviting and welcoming and serving, listening, forgiving, uh, etc. He also lists attitudes at times, um, like open-mindedness, non-judgmentalism, things like that that he would associate empathy, humility, that he would associate with an accompanier or a companion. Um, what sorts of practical things can we suggest then to to pastors of parishes and uh, other Catholic leadership and and helping them to try to create these spaces or cultivate these spaces for accompaniment? Um, what sorts of advice might you have, or are there other models that you've seen in your time and ex and in your experience of accompaniment that you found some somewhat successful? Um, I in my experience you have to do it yourself first. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to find a model and doing it, you have to sit like your pastors, mm -hmm. your catechetical leaders, your DREs, your youth ministers, your young adult ministers, pastoral associates, how, whatever you have in your parish community, you need to sit and have someone facilitate a process of listening and dialogue with you because mm -hmm. you have to form that community among your staff first. Mm -hmm. And that's not a given. That's not a given at parishes. That was not a given when I worked at a parish. You know, we did not know each other well. We were just all doing our own thing. So when we talk about breaking down silos in ministry, I mean, that's key. You have your parish community has to work together. Your, your leadership has to know one another. They have to care for one another. They have to be interested in one another's lives. I mean, that's a faith community. We use that word community way too liberally. <laughs> community is not just a place where you all go to mass. Community is where you are known and recognized and people know your name when you walk in and they care for you and you know you're cared for, you know? So that's my first piece of advice is that start doing this with yourselves. And then what happens is the experience that you have in a well-facilitated dialogue session, now you become the facilitators for the next group. So who is it that needs to be listened to right now? Maybe it's your families. The amount of catechetical leaders that I know that really don't love the families in their communities because they think they're the ones just checking off boxes and doing these things. And, you know, I mean, there's a, there is a real healing relationship problem we have with our families, our parents and our catechists, you know, and our, our DREs and maybe even our pastors, you know, and so maybe you need to start inviting a few families together and say, can we talk about this? What's going on? What's, you know, like, but Again, and, and I have had people try to do that. And I have also had families say, 
I don't know that I feel safe actually expressing to you how I feel that it won't be used against my child in sacramental prep or whatever it is. So like, we have to really be conscious of the fact that people feel they'll be judged and that their words could be used as a weapon against them. So how do we create a safe, I don't know if safe is the right word, maybe a brave space, a space where we actually are modeling and practicing listening and saying, I, you know, there's, and there's, there's procedures and what, and, and so the model that we were using to engage youth and young adults in the life of the church was to first engage ministry leaders across the field first and, and to do that work together. So it was the national dialogue is what it was called. It was co-sponsored by a whole bunch of organizations, NFCYM, um, the USCCB national advisory team that I'm on, uh, LaRed, all of these, you know, all these national groups. Um, and, and so we engaged in listening. We created a synodal process. We did it with one another um, I facilitated a group there and then I used that model and I, uh, across the, the pond over here at one of the schools and, and this was all kind of before COVID, which changed things a little bit, a uh, little bit, um, but still because of that, because of COVID, because of the racial, you know, injustices going on and the racial awakening that we are having in this country, people need to be listened to. What was their experience of church during the pandemic? Where was the church in, in, you know, talking about George Floyd's murder, you know, like, so people want to be heard, especially our young people want to be heard. Mm -hmm. DIY, DIT, do it together. Uh, that's a good message. All right, Daniela and Patrick, we're giving you the last words. I'll, I'll build on that a little bit. Tracy, I think you're spot on with proposing for uh, people to engage in these processes before being able to extend it. Um, and I would go a step deeper too with that and say like, where is the stability within us as people of faith so as to be able to listen and work well and collaborate with our colleagues and then more broadly, you know, with the communities that we serve? Um, you know, at times I felt like I could really be open and honest and be heard uh, was with, with people who had that kind of stability about them. And how do people kind of develop that kind of stability about them? Like who are, who are the people around, around us that we know who are models of this sort of thing, who are, who are not eager to jump in, that there's not that anxiety about them to like control, but rather they just kind of like extend that space and allow, allow ones to be. So I'm interested in that sort of disposition and like how do we foster that? And I think that's a spiritual practice too, to form that stability within us. Um, so I guess I would add that as a practical measure too. It's like, as we're calling these uh, meetings together to have like listening within ourselves as a team, like how do we also think about that personally as people of faith who are seeking to have that disposition of heart, that stability of heart? Um, what are we doing for our prayer practices to foster that? How are we taking time um, to not be frazzled by like whatever, you know, but rather be in a firm rooted place. I would just say that. I think about, real quick, Daniela, and then we'll let Patrick jump in for a last word. Um, I think about how many times uh, parish leadership reaches out for volunteers for various things. And almost never, I would imagine, on their criteria, if they have one to begin with, is listed there kind of a quiet disposition of empathy and allowing space for people to talk and be themselves. What they're looking for is willingness and they're looking for knowledge of any kind that might be helpful, you know, or, or resourcefulness. But what you're saying, I think, should be on that list of criteria for volunteers in any sort of parish uh, programming or in any sort of experience of accompaniment. Um, yeah, so related to what Danielle was saying about the need for the strength, I, you know, I, I would 
add or disqualify that um, I, I think there's also a, a, a need um, for, um, yeah, for an, an ability to, um, to abide the tensions that we experience in, in ministry. Uh, you know, I, th I think Mary for, for us can be a model of this, that when we think of all the tension that she, that she experienced in her lifetime, all the strange things that she saw Jesus do and, you know, the sense of what, what you know, what he was heading towards in his life. And what do we hear that, that, you know, she held, she pondered all these things in her heart, that she was able to hold these things in, in her heart. Um, and so when we talk about how difficult it can be to listen to people when they are angry at the church, when they're asking hard questions, this, this creates a tension within us. And we don't like that. We, try and we run away from that. We don't, we don't pick up the phone, as Danielle was saying. Uh, we avoid the conversation. We avoid the person in the parking lot. Um, but I think we need to become more practiced in this as a church, that we need to, uh, to wade out into those uncomfortable places that we need to, to get some practice and get used to being in that tension. Uh, because just to, just to maybe conclude with one brief story, I was really inspired a little while ago hearing um, uh, the story from a priest friend who he had, to, he had to do something very difficult for a pastor and he had to confront somebody within the parish who was, who was uh, violating boundaries. And so he addressed it once and they laid down a plan and those boundaries were crossed again. Um, and so it, after numerous conversations, it became clear that this person just couldn't be a part of the community. And in most circumstances, that would have been the end of the story. Um, but this pastor did the, what I think the, was the remarkable thing, is, is he continued to meet with this person for coffees and lunches for months afterwards to process what was going on. Because he did not want, even though this was, would have been a supremely uncomfortable thing to do, he had done everything, he, everyone would have said he did everything reasonable up to this point, and yet, he, he made the commandment to continue to accompany this person so that even as more boundaries had to be put down, even this person would not feel cast out by, by the church. You can only do something like that if you have learned to abide in that tension, if you uh, are really abiding within Christ yourself and you have those kind of inner reserves that you're allowing the spirit to work through you. So I think that's something that, that we really need to work on cultivating as, as a church. And I speak for myself in, in that as well. Yeah, I implicate myself in that too, Patrick. I think we all need to uh, be more practiced at those, uh, at the art of accompaniment in, in whatever sort of unique way it, it, it shows up in our lives in terms of opportunities to accompany. Um, and I just wanted to, to, to kind of put a closing thought on this, which is that we're so versed in, in the world of catechesis and evangelization of talking about how much Jesus loves us and, and trying to persuade people of that love. But we don't often think about how critical it is that we also show, whether it's our students or whether it's other adults or whoever it is, that we also love them. Not just that Jesus loves them, but that we also love them and that those two loves are very much intertwined. I think we're really coming into an era now where, where and Francis is kind of leading it, where we're highlighting that second part of the critical mission of catechesis, which is showing people that we also love them. And I want to thank you all. You've been tremendous guests. 
Uh, we've been chatting with Danielle Jupon Jerome, Director of Ministerial Formation at St. John's University School of Theology and Seminary, also Patrick Manning, Associate Professor and Chair of Pastoral Theology at Seton Hall, and Tracy Lamont, Assistant, Assistant Professor of Religious Education and Young Adult Ministry at Loyola Institute for Ministry in New Orleans. You have been fantastic, the three of you. This has been a tour de force of accompaniment in a two-part series, and I, I think the, the conversation was tremendous and very insightful and very passionate. So I know that the three of you are very academic-minded, but thank you for balancing your, your humongous intellects with your passion and everything else about you, your humanity, everything. So thank you for bringing that all to the table today. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. It's been a joy. I'd like to close with a prayer, and uh, then actually, would one of you, I always have a guest do it. What am I doing? Would one of you uh, like to offer a quick prayer for all of our listeners? So maybe In the name of the Father, Jeffrey. and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving God, we thank you for this time of conversation, for wisdom, for growth, for conversion um, among ourselves, but also perhaps at the service of those who are listening. We ask you to continue to form us all in the image of your son who walked with Amen. us, accompanied us, loved us beyond measure. And we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to continue to inspire us um, to be able to walk in step with not only the spirit, but those around us. Grateful for this time, we ask you to continue to bless this ministry and extend it to those especially who need to hear it the most, those who feel isolated, overwhelmed, burdened in their respective roles. And we ask all this with joyful hearts in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Chattachesis. I'm your host, Deacon Matt Hallback. Have a great day, folks, and we'll chat with you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chattachesis. Head over to sadlyreligion.com forward slash podcast to hear more. And don't forget to request your sample and trial of Christ in Us and our bilingual edition, Cristo in Nosotros, at sadlyreligion.com forward slash CIU.